Welcome to the Cinescape Magazine podcast. <laughs> Movie review show lineup. <laughs> Never get used to that. I'm Dr. Dan. What do we got? I've got two movies and a TV show. All right. I have seen a f- um, over the years, I've seen a few Swedish movies. And off the top of my head, I can't remember all of them. But there are some that stand out. And they're really well done. And a lot of times they're also done in you know, what Swedish or whatever, you know, language it's called and, you know, with English subtitles and there is some really cool stuff that comes out. You know, there's the girl with the dragon tattoo trilogy, the original one and, um, troll hunter, troll hunter is a really good fucking movie. That's a movie I like to watch on Netflix, like every couple of years. Um, what else there's, there's been a couple others like let the right one in. Then it was remade in America called let me in. And it was definitely better. The original version was better. And even with a lower budget, by the way. And I came across this movie. It's been popping up on my Hulu um, recommended movies for a while now. And the picture on the screen when the movie comes on, and the movie's called Border. And, of course, it's Swedish. That's why I'm on this kick. And it shows this picture of a person in, like, a security guard outfit or like a more like a, like a customs security outfit and it looks like a lady but she's very unattractive it looks like almost like a cave person and it doesn't describe much at all in the description on the on the hulu page but i i saw i've, I've seen it for like at least a year popping up there and i keep skipping past it right and i don't know why but this weekend i i just felt like watching another foreign movie and i saw it there and i, I was like okay watch the trailer So I watched the trailer for this shit and I'm like, this is fucking interesting. It looks weird. This person is definitely extremely unattractive and, and, and there's something magical maybe going on here. Mysterious odd as hell. So anyway, customs officer Tina is known for her extraordinary sense of smell. It's almost as if she can sniff out the guilt on anyone hiding something. But when Vor a suspicious looking man walks past her. Her abilities are challenged for the first time ever. Tina can sense Vor is hiding something she can't identify. Even worse, she feels a strange attraction to him. As Tina develops a special bond with Vor and discovers his true identity, she also realizes the truth about herself. Okay, so, so Border is directed by a guy named Ali Abbasi. All right, he also co wrote the screenplay. It's based on a book um, or something, yeah, like a short story called Border as well by a guy named Jeff. <laughs> these names are so difficult. <laughs> Forgive me for how I say these, but it's John Advide Linkvist. 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 I, it, for, like I said, forgive me. All right. All right. Anyway, this movie is, oh my God. Before I get into it, this was nominated for an Oscar for best makeup and hairstyling at the 91st Academy Awards in 28, you know, for the movies that came out in 2018. And it is definitely one of those films that I wish I had watched sooner, but because I just had no interest in just the, you know, the picture of it on there, I, I, you know, I missed out on this thing and I, and I, you know, I, I'm not like dying of regret from it or anything like that. Cause I finally watched it. I'm glad I did. I just wish I had watched it sooner. That's it. That's all I got to say about, you know, that, but so an actress named Eva Melander plays Tina and the movie starts off where she's at, you know, customs, you know, where the boats are coming in and people are walking through just like at airport terminal. And she just 
she just looks at people as they're walking by and she's every once in a while she's just sniffing and i kid you not dude she looks like the geico caveman it has the gigantic you know forehead the big eyebrows ugly teeth ugly big troll type looking nose just looks like someone who you could tell they would probably never have a happy physical relationship in their life you know because how judgmental people are but and you also don't know much about her because she doesn't talk a lot and you just you from first impression it just be looks like someone you probably wouldn't want to know okay you know judging a book by its cover kind of thing and she lives in a very secluded life she lives in a house that her father owned and she's got a tenant who lives with her who's this weird looking you know he's this weird skinny guy who has dogs and he kind of he kind of has taken over the house in a way with his dogs. And so she goes out a lot. She goes out when she gets home from work, she goes outside and she stays out and just walks around the trees. Like she, she gives off this vibe that she's, she's attracted to nature and, and also seclusion in a way. And she's just, yeah, she's walking around and, and all this stuff. And, and you're just, it's, it's just kind of odd when you're, you know, like what's going on with this character. And look, I don't want to give too much away. But there is some, uh, I believe it's Nordic mythology that plays into this movie and it doesn't overdo it. It's in little ways that I don't want to give away because I, like I said, I want you to check this out and be surprised. This movie is not in any way whatsoever predictable. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding you at all. It, every direction it goes, you're like, huh? Okay. That's interesting. Oh, what? Okay. Weird. But all right. And it's, it's, oh my God. I, I, I started caring about the characters. I started caring about what she was going through and, and going into this mystery about her discovering who she is, who her, her true self is, and the people she's interacting with. This guy, Vor, this mysterious guy. Um, there's also this, this subplot where she, because she sniffs people going through customs, she sniffs out a guy who's hiding an SD card that has child porn on it. And um, she had, the subplot is where she's helping police find the people that this guy got this from. And there's more to it with that. And it's just weird. It's out of left field interesting. And it kind of reminded me in a way, if you've ever seen the Running Scared movie with Paul Walker from 2005, I believe, where there's this weird... Um, uh, pedophile family subplot that happens in the movie out of nowhere where the kid just gets kidnapped by them and he's stuck there for a while and it's just weird like it's one of those things you just never would expect to happen in a movie you know veers uh, left you know so the subplot works though and it works into other things that happen in the movie and it just keeps pulling you in it's off-putting at the same time though they don't show anything but there's just things that are said and you can hear that are off-putting but it adds to the overall experience of the movie about what this character is going through and stuff like that while she's figuring out who she is herself and other things and by the time the movie was over i was i i just felt like this form of like enthusiasm and optimism for for films like I, this is one of those movies that makes me enjoy watching movies you know because it showed me something different and it wasn't something that was too weird that it turned me off. Instead, it showed me something weird that worked and it, it just, everything about it, the way it was directed, acted, the visual effects that happened a couple times in the film, all of it didn't take, and then, you know, even the visual effects didn't take me out of the movie. 
you know, even though you can tell there's a couple little minor, very minor CG things that happen, it still didn't take me out. It worked. And that's what's cool about um, these kind of movies, like when you watch them from uh, Sweden and stuff like that, like Troll Hunter. I mean, Troll Hunter used way more visual effects, of course, but they did it in a way that most of the time it didn't take you out like, oh, that's a bunch of CG, you know. Instead, they would use shadows and stuff like that and shading or do things at nighttime. So it was harder to tell that it's obvious CG, stuff like that. This movie, though, is different. I'm not saying this movie's like Troll Hunter because it's not. I'm just comparing it to another Swedish film that has a little bit of um, mythology type stuff um, wrapped into it. I highly recommend this movie. You know, I mean, I've, I've told you about shitty movies before, but this is not this isn't one of those movies that's in the middle. This is one of those like if I was going to give ratings to it, this is one of those between eight and ten type movies like you got to see it. If you like movies and you like, like if you, for example, if you like troll hunter or you like let the right one in where you see a, a, a kind of horror film or with a film with horror elements to it, that's done in a different way. Yes. Border is, is really well done. So you got to check it out. All right. So <clears throat> my review about a week or so ago, Argo, but Hey, I'm not being judgmental. <laughs> You sensitive bitch. So I was I was scrolling through my uh, YouTube feed and came across this audiobook. Now I'm a huge fan of Van Halen. There's been a couple of books, Sammy's book, and there's a book out by Ted Templeman. But the one that I wanted to read was Running with the Devil, a backstage pass to the wild times, loud rock, and the down and dirty truth behind the making of Van Halen by Noel Monk. And it was written it was written. It was uh narrated by Fred Berman. He's got kind of like this smoky David Lee Roth style voice, very California, you know, uh, surfer dude type. So I'm, I'm reading through the book and Noel Monk was Van Halen's manager. He was their tour manager back in 1978. He was also the tour manager for the Sex Pistols in their short run here in America in the 70s, late 70s, so 77. And Warner Brothers brought him in and said, hey, you've got to check out this new band. And he's like, yeah, whatever, you know. I'll, if you, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. They're like, well, we're, we're basically promoting you to be the tour manager for this new group of kids. They are phenomenal, bombastic. And anytime people use those words around new bands, it could be short lived. Yeah. So Noel went and found these kids and, uh, liked them. They were genuine. I don't, I'm not going to get into the whole story. I'm going to get into a couple of interesting things that are going that, I believe in this a theory, but I think uh, is problematic of the band. David Lee Roth is a complete fucking ego asshole. That's first and foremost. Yeah. Michael Anthony, there wasn't much talk about Michael Anthony in the book. He kept to himself most of the time during the initial Van Halen, the original lineup. Let's just call it that. The David Lee Roth, Michael Anthony, Van Halen, Alex, or Eddie and Alex. Eddie Van Halen is a savant. He is a musical genius. He's naive, was, and uh, a severe alcoholic and a cokehead. Alex Van Halen, how do I put this? Delicately? <laughs> no. <laughs> Alex Van Halen is wet brain. That guy could drink more in the first two hours of being awake than anybody could drink during the entire day. Make a fish feel like a landlubber. And he would, on average, drink a case of beer a day or more. He would drink at least a case of beer a day. Now, 
I bring this up because that's the dysfunction of this band. Dave drank, Mike drank. There is no amount of shortage of drugs available to these people, no amount of shortage of alcohol available to these people. I'm not, I am not judging these guys. They were young at the time. What are you going to do when you're out? You're in a rock and roll band. You're playing across arenas and you're single and you have access to lots of drugs, lots of beer, lots of booze. As time goes on in 19, between 1970 and 79, uh, Marshall Burl, who I believe is the nephew of Milton Burl, was fired from Van Halen and they hired Noel Monk because he was a tour manager. He was always there. Marshall Burl would show up once in a great while just to show off, show off his, he would show off to his wife, you know, which bands he was, he was, uh, repping at the time. Yeah. And he repped a lot of bands from a lot of the stories that I've heard. Van Halen used Marshall Burl because, because of his connection to Milton Burl. They figured that they would be able to use that as leverage, but you know, it got them somewhere. Fine. Noel became manager of Van Halen in 1979, all the way through 1985, 86-ish, right before Ed Leffler, who was Van, who was Sammy Hagar's manager, took over. In that time, Noel Monk was helping the band make, this is, and I fucking kid you not, when they were doing arenas and they were doing their own tour merchandise, $375,000 a night in cash. And he would take the cash and fucking run with it. He he had security guards, obviously, and get the fuck out of there as soon as possible. Take that cash and stash it away. Uh-huh. Three hundred seventy-five thousand a night. Three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars a night. Two hundred nights. <sighs> Do the math, and that was split four ways. Yeah, that's profit. That's not. That's after everything. That's what they were making. Yeah, Noel Monk. And the band put in $50,000 of their own money for this operation. So he was part owner. And I'm going to get to the part where everything gets fucked up. That's about, let's say, around $60 bucks. Yeah. The band doesn't understand the industry. As they're going through all of this stuff, Noel gets called in because... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm missing something. Before the 1984 tour. So we're coming to the end of Noel's career with Van Halen. Noel comes up with the idea of having a company sponsor the group. Now, Van Halen at the US Festival was the highest paid band ever to perform on stage for like an hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half, let's say two hours, at $1.5 million. And any band that asked for more money, Van Halen had it in their contract writer that they would automatically get $50,000 more than the next highest paid band. So if, and this happened, so David Bowie said, well, if you're going to have band, if you're going to have Van Halen do it, I want what they're making. So for the US Festival, they paid David Bowie the 1.5 million, which means that the contract, the, uh, the writer and the contract kicked in and Van Halen got $50,000 more automatically. Because it was written in the contract for them to be the highest paid band at the US Festival. Yeah. Regardless of the day. <laughs> also, Noel Monk set it up so that they could pay, so that they could sell their merch Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He didn't care about Monday because that's Monday, didn't matter. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. He was the, they were the only band to sell their merch 
for those three days because each day was dedicated to a specific genre. So you had punk rock, you had new wave, punk rock, new wave, heavy metal and country and something else. They were selling merchandise while all the other bands weren't doing that. They weren't selling for all those days. They were just selling on their own day, right? Yeah. So they were just breaking in fuck, fucking tons of cash. And then before the tour, Noel said, hey, let's, uh, let's see if we can get a company to uh, sponsor us for the tour. So he goes to New York, talks to an adver- advertising agency. Advertising agency says, let's see what we can do. Shouldn't be a problem. It's Van Halen. Sparkomatic, which made uh, radios and all this other stuff, comes back and says, we will pay you $1.2 million up front in cash. If you put our logo on your shirt, it doesn't have to be large. It can be somewhere on the shirt as long as it says Sparkomatic, like presented by Sparkomatic or whatever. So Noel says, well, let me get this right. So the contract for the upfront cash is $1.2 million. That doesn't include... Any residuals, they don't have to do TV, they don't have to do radio, they don't have to do interviews, they don't have to do commercials, they don't have to do anything for the company other than put the logo on the shirt. And, and they're like, yeah, plus what, you know, all the advertising that'll come with it, blah, blah, blah. So you'll get back end as well. Okay, let me take this to the band. Calls, this is what he said. He calls Eddie's house and David Lee Roth picks up the phone and Noel says, hey, where's the rest of the band? And then Dave's like, well, they're here. I've got good news. Sparkomatic, $1.2 million upfront cash right now. I need an answer. And Dave says, fuck them, Levi's and Budweiser. That's what we want. <laughs> the, American, the American public buys Budweiser and they buy Levi's. Get those fucking guys to sponsor us. And Noel's like, Dave, this company sells the radios that are played to listen to your music. It's $1.2 million in cash today. David Ross knows, no, no. Basically, he's just telling Noel to go fuck himself, right? Yeah. He's all, well, hold on a second. Let me go talk to the boys. And as the guy's reading, as Noel wrote it, he's like, I don't think he talked to them at all. Doesn't sound like it. So he comes back and says, the guy said no, fuck off. Click. And like a week later, he gets a call from Alex. And so he, he, he had called and said, hey, I guess the Sparkmatic deal's done. Whatever. I'm sorry. Gets a call from Alex a week later and says, hey, What's going on with that Sparkomatic deal? Ugh. And Noel says, oh, the deal fell through. He didn't tell him what happened with Dave. Oh, that's great. He just said it's just not going to happen. So now they just think he's incompetent or someone couldn't get a deal done, right? No. Okay. It goes far beyond that. Because this is a guy that's been with them since 79. So getting a deal done is not impossible. Okay. He got them out of their contract, their shit contract. They were making more money than ever. Okay. So There's, it's just another day, another I, deal. I just kept thinking it was going to take an ironic turn, that's all. Oh, it is. Tour's over. Alex says, hey, Noel, we need to meet with you. Meets with Al and says, we're going to do an audit. And it's a line, line item audit, audit or laser audit. Anyways, the audit is an in-depth audit. It checks every single purchase, every single amount of money that was taken out, put in. They were checking. This is Al, by the way, because... <laughs> Al has a history of getting married and getting divorced and running out of money. So he called Noel because his one-fourth of that, or one-fifth, really, but his one-fourth of that $1.2 million, was a 300 grand? Yeah. Is cash in his hands. 300 grand. Yeah. Al doesn't have any money. 
So he does an audit of Noel and everything comes up roses. No money's missing. There's there's no there's the the books are clean. 100% for this band. Noel has dedicated at this point 6 years of his life to this band 24 hours a day helping them out. It's an amazing book. It really is. It's 11-hour audiobook. I listened to it in 2 days. Noel already knows what's going to happen. He's being set up to be fired because of the Sparkomatic thing. Yeah. Dave fucked him over because Dave never told the band what happened. Which is the guess I made in the first place. Gets better. Mm. They call a band meeting to fire Noel. He shows up at their house. He shows up at... No, they showed up at his house. He, he, they were at his house. Al, completely sober, because now he's running the show. Yeah. Well, he's... I'll just say sober with quotes around it. He's, he's more level-headed now, right now. I haven't even gotten into the fucking Al story yet. And they start talking to him. And the one thing is the Sparkomatic deal. Yeah, you 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 know you failed on the Sparkomatic deal. That was money, and and Dave went, oh, that was my fault. He finally spoke spoke up. He never told those guys anything. And finally, when they're in the middle of, they they didn't fire him at this point, but they had this this band meeting with him, where basically they're he's you know eighty six to get the fuck out, lining him up for slaughter. Yeah, and finally the truth comes out. They fire Noel before Noel gets fired. They have a, a band meeting. They cut Michael Anthony out of all profits from 1984 moving forward. Now, to back this up, I get it. Michael Anthony did not contribute to the writing. He did not contribute to the music. He did not contribute to anything when it comes to, except for the first album, maybe the second, anything music-wise for Van Halen. Eddie wrote 90% of the music. Dave wrote the lyrics. Alex did the drums. But he's, he's Eddie's brother. So they cut Michael Anthony out of all profits. Now, this came out in Sammy Hagar's book. And every, a lot of people think that they cut Michael Anthony out of all profits, like starting in 2004. This happened in 1985. Alex came, or Eddie, Dave, and Alex came and said, hey, we're cutting Michael Anthony out. And Noel looked at Ed and said, are you doing this? He goes, I'm just tired of arguing with Alex. Just do it. And it was done. They wrote a letter. They had, a, they had a lawyer write a letter. Michael Anthony signed the letter because it's a gig that's always going to pay at that point. And uh, he was cut out of all profits from 1984 moving forward. That's, the, that's what is in the book. It, all profits. He was not making any residuals. He is, not, he is no longer one-fourth of the band. He is just a paid bass player. Now, there was some pretty disparaging stuff said about Michael Anthony. He's a mediocre musician. He's a mediocre bass player, blah, blah, blah. He is not. He is not a mediocre musician. He is not a mediocre bass player. And he's got, they nicknamed him Cannon Mouth because he is loud when he sings. Yeah. He's really, really loud. And in fact, he had to stand back like a foot from the microphone while they were recording so they didn't blow out the, uh, the, the recording console. Like a banshee, huh? Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. He's, he's really good. But Michael Anthony did not get involved. The, reading While you're reading the book or listening to the book, Michael Anthony was never with the band always. He he usually had his girlfriend Sue was who turned into his wife <clears throat> with him, or he was just all fucking around by himself. He's 
So what it sounds like is that he he didn't give a shit about their problems. The reason for him getting cut out is more money for Al. That's the reason. Okay. And maybe Dave as well. But that's the reason. So Noel gets fired. He hasn't talked to the guys since. That was 1985. Dave left the band. And this is the, this is the other thing that really made me kind of pop my eyebrow was very last show. Dave comes to Noel, sits down, plays a song, and it's just a gigolo. And then you hear Dave's voice over it. And Dave's like, what do you think, Noel? And Noel's like, eh, it's average. It's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. He's like, but that's the way I want to do things, Dave, Noel. And we're going to do a solo album and do this and that and then blah, blah, blah. Right? Boozy, boozy, bop. <laughs> and Noel's like, you know, you got to do what you got to do, bro. Right? Mm. You know, I want to do a solo album and we'll go from there. Dave was already planning to leave. Yeah. Sounds like it. So if you watch interviews, I was fired, I was fired, I was fired. Noel Monk says it in his book. And Eddie Van Halen has repeated these same lines. David Lee Roth quit. Yeah. yeah he, it, he's told those guys to go fuck themselves. Yeah, because I would assume his ego was huge. And also he probably had other people saying, oh, you'd be huge by yourself. Pretty much. Yeah. Told those guys to go fuck themselves and went and did his own thing. After his Crazy from the Heat album, which did okay. It's it's much bigger now, but it did okay, but it, it didn't do anywhere close to 1984 no. with the Van Halen 1 albums. And that left Van Halen in the lurch. Every story that you heard Edward talk about, he's Dave's, what was the one story? When you have to fight somebody over the Playboy, you know it's a problem. Yeah. His ego is out of control. He's an asshole. He's problematic. Can't, you know... But, this, that, and the other thing. It's, it's, but every story that you hear is the same exact shit. Yeah. From the band. Even Sammy Hagar was saying the same exact shit, which is, so they told him, and, and so they, I mean, you don't, they don't have anything to lie. And then you hear, have Dave on the other side saying, oh, everything's a lie. It's just, it's all, it, it's, it's, it's all fun and fancy three, free, but really they fired me because they, they just couldn't handle me anymore. Yeah. If Noel Monk is to be believed and he has nothing to lose because he's beyond the he's beyond the statute of limitations because it was in the contract that he had to sign when he got fired, which is no interviews, no books, no this, no that, no talking about the band for X amount of time. A full on NDA. Yep. That statute of limitation is done. And that's why he wrote this book. It's mm -hmm. a no holds barred look at this band. Mine, I mean, he didn't get into the fucking debauchery and this and that. I mean, he did tell some stories, but he didn't get into that nonsense. He kept it professional, relatively professional. I mean, he told the stories about how these guys like Alex Van Halen is literally a fucking insane. He drinks. He drank so much that he's what he's wet brain. He's delusional. He came to Noel one night and said, no, I'm having these dreams where I have a loaded rifle with me and I crawl into bed between my parents and I stay up at night and dicks come out of the walls. I'm having vivid hallucinations of dicks, big dicks, small dicks, dicks literally coming out of the walls. That's all the different kinds of dick collectors. Yeah. He's having dick hallucinations. That's a problem. And this is a guy that is basically the guy that runs the band. That's scary. Now, Alex has since sobered up. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. Uh, he, he quit drinking, like, relatively quickly after that. Like, uh, 
sometime around 89, 90 or something. On his own or intervention or what? I don't know. I, I know that he, he cleaned up. He's, he's sober. So I don't know if he's still having the hallucinations of dicks coming out of walls. I have to say this. This fucking book is amazing. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't ever let you down. If you read the book, it's going to be a quick read. But if you listen to the book, you can you get a little bit more of a sense of everything that's going on, and, and you just see the pictures in your head as you're listening to uh, as you listen to the guy detail all the stuff that's going on. And I loved it every moment of it. I mean, I knew the, I already knew the history of the band as it was, and I got more detail filled in about the history of the band. You know, it goes through all the albums. He, Noel Monk wasn't there for the recording of the album, so he never he didn't feel comfortable going into the studios. But like I said, I have to check. Hold on a second. Ted Templeman is the guy that was always was there as well. So it was Ted Templeman, Noel Monk, and Mo Austin. The those guys ran well. Mo Austin ran Warner Brothers at the time. Ted Templeman was the guy. He produced albums. He was produced fucking the Doobie Brothers' biggest hits. He produced just you name it. You named the, uh, oh, uh, Fleetwood Mac, you know. How many albums did uh, Hagar do with Van Halen? Uh, <laughs> uh, he did four albums, a live video, live without a net, uh, live right here, right now. See, uh, 5150, OU at Win 2, For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, Balance. Yeah. Oh, and uh, and then there's another one called uh, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. It's done by Greg Renoff. Greg also did Van Halen Rising, and um, yeah, the uh, Van Halen Rising book is phenomenal. It that one really goes into depth, but not as much. It, but it's like it's like it paints a picture, but Noel's book fills in the blanks. It's like the paint by numbers, right? You get the outline, you like or a puzzle. It's incomplete puzzle, yeah. but Noel's book fills that puzzle. It, it's that's that's how good these books are. So Greg Ranoff did a great job on the Van Halen Rising book. Um, I'm I'm really looking forward to reading the Ted Templeman book. I haven't read the Van Halen Rising book, but my friend has, and yeah. he says it's really really good. So at some point, I will uh, I will check that out. I may actually end up just buying the fucking uh, buying both of them on um, Kindle. All right, dude, you talked about this book for almost forty minutes. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I bet you didn't even, you barely, I think you only covered like one subject on it. That's fucking hilarious. All right. So the movie that I've heard about for years and I just never had either had the opportunity to watch it or had any interest in it. And now I'm trying to watch things that I've never seen before, you know? All right. In the future, earth is ruled by Eternals <coughs> and advanced and see what I think it is. The Eternals? An advanced and secret sect of beings who reign over a savage group called Brutals. The Eternals have created a god named Zardoz to intimidate the Brutals, making them believe that killing is their natural state. However, Zed, a Brutal warrior, challenges that assumption when he enters the Zardoz monument and is captured by an Eternal. There he learns the truth about the Eternals and the false god that rules society. All right. So Zardoz is a 1974 Irish-American science fantasy film and later a book written, produced, and directed by John Borman. All right. Starring, of course, as the, the head brutal Sean Connery as Zed and Charlotte Rampling and Sarah Kesselman. 
Charlotte Rampling, if you've seen her now, because she's not attractive at all now, back in 1974, god damn it, she was fucking hot. All right, this movie is... <laughs> yes, because women that get older just stop looking pretty. Well, there's some women that have aged good. She looks like now, she just doesn't look like she aged well. It, there's some She's got to be like 85. Uh, she's in her 70s, but there's some women that have aged fucking pretty good, man. I, I mean, you know, I mean, they don't look bonable in their 70s, but they at least look like, you know, they they held up. <laughs> All right. All right. She looks like now at this age, like she's fought a few STDs in her time. <laughs> so, all right. <clears throat> this movie starts off with this, um, this character named, um, oh God, the, pretty much the guy who plays Zardoz. It's, he's a disembodied head and he's talking to the screen and it's all exposition. He's explaining shit, which I found out was cut in. It was added into the movie because audiences didn't understand anything. And it, I, totally understand because you know what if you didn't have some explanation at all this movie would be like this weird odd clusterfuck art house movie that would only make sense to the makers if you didn't have any exposition at all so it was actually important that that the zardoz character spoke to the audience before the movie starts in a way so so after he explains the history the the brief history of the brutals and the eternals about, you know, this being in the future and shit like that. It starts showing this gigantic stone floating head. And it's traveling through the sky. And, I, I dude, this movie's made on like a $1.7 million budget back in 1974. Not bad. Holy shit. I, I, and this movie's in like HD that I watched it on when it was on. I think it was on Hulu. And it... The fact that they were able to cram all of the the costumes and makeup and visual effects and sets in and also paying oh I, I believe half of it half of the budget went to paying Sean Connery for being in it because apparently this was a couple years after he did the last role as um you know James Bond and he wasn't getting roles and I mean of course he never you know never say never again he did that like ten years later but I'm not counting that one. This is right after he did the, the, his initial run of James Bond, and yeah, he wasn't getting any roles because everyone was typecasting him as as James Bond. So he signs on to this because they gave him this fat salary for it. And the whole movie, he's in a red bikini bottom, and he's got two um, of those uh, bullet like shotgun shell um, rolls. I don't know what the fuck you call them, but he's uh, he has them you know around his arms and shoulders, and he's got this fucking mustache. Bandolier. Yeah. And he's got this mustache and his ponytail. And he looks like, he looks like, I guess, Pancho Villa or some shit. It's just fucking hilarious. His character looks funny. So anyway, he's the head of these brutal guys. And this 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 giant stone head that's called Zardoz is floating through the sky. And it lands. And it lands in front of these brutals who are killing people. Just randomly just shooting everyone who's not dressed like them. They all look like homeless people that they're killing. They're massacring. And the head starts talking to him about, it's just weird shit. The penis is bad. And the, and, and the gun is good. <laughs> it's so fucking weird. This, this big godly voice. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, all these guns and shotgun shells just start flying out of the mouth of this thing, like almost like vomit, but you could tell there's just people behind the teeth throwing them out in groups, you know, and it's just so fucking funny looking. I started laughing when I'm watching this shit. I'm like, where is this going? Where is this fucking movie going? 
And and the all of a sudden, after these guys get all these guns, all these brutals get these guns, it cuts to Connery waking up in a pile of wheat, ground up wheat, inside the mouth of Zardoz. And now Zardoz has flown through this thing called the Vortex. Now it's in the land where the Eternals live. Okay? Which is pretty much just a barrier. It's a barrier. It's a it's a it's a invisible barrier that keeps anyone from the land of the Brutals getting into the land of the Eternals. And so he wakes up in the head. He kills. Gar- I'm sorry, but it happens right at the beginning of the movie, so I don't give a shit. He kills Zardoz. If you haven't fucking seen it by now, I mean, it, it came out what almost 50 years ago. And so yeah, he kills Zardoz. He climbs out of the place and he starts going into these buildings and stuff. And you know, he finds you know a- a- where these Eternals live. And then I, without me even, without them even conveying that they did it, they start controlling his mind to keep him from attacking them, which I didn't know because they don't, like I said, the movie is kind of poor at conveying certain things. Like some things it seems like, and this happens a lot in seventies movies. There's a lot left to the imagination. Like either if you've read the book then you know what's going on or, or you just have to be smart. (laughs) You have to be extremely intelligent to know what's going on without them telling you and so yeah they, they, he doesn't attack them which is weird but there's a reason for it because i had to read about this movie after watching because i'm when it was all said and done i was partially confused by it because this movie tackles a bunch of different themes you know it's about aging and our place in the universe and the haves and the have-nots and and uh oh god just other things too, I you know technology and and stuff and it, it's it's a lot it's a lot to to take in and I will tell you this this movie does a lot of moments where it'll take go away from the action and the drama and it'll do like these visual spectacle scenes with with you know um, split screen and 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 kaleidoscope type of uh, type of imagery and weird hallucinogenic type shit. And it, it kind of takes away from what you're trying to get from this movie. But when it's actually focusing on these characters and how weird they're acting and all these things, I was actually intrigued by it. I, I, this movie's got a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. And I understand why. But at the same time, because I read the, re- you know, the partial reviews for it uh, from the time period. And I get it. I understand People being like, oh, it's overly artsy and, and confusing and shit. And you to a point, yes, absolutely. But there is a fucking smart movie buried in this film. I mean, a very, very smart movie. It just seems like this movie itself couldn't tell it in a proper way overall. Like if this had been, if this gets like remade and told. Do you think there was a disconnect between the director and the writer? Um... No, actually, I don't. I think it. Uh, I think it was more like there is only a certain amount of time to put in this movie what you do, and they spent too much time worrying about visual flair than explaining shit. Ah, okay. I think that's probably what the, the problem was. I, but I could totally see this. You get when someone, did this movie come out? Seventy four. Yeah, so before Star Wars and stuff like that. So you had more wild and wacky, you know. Right, right. Like Logan's Run. Yeah, like Logan's Run. Like Logan's Run. It has, 2001. Yeah, it has something to say, right? About, you know, society and stuff. Right. This movie has something to say. And yeah. it's important. It's, but it's in one of those weird places. Yeah, and it's really weird. And I could tell why it turned a lot of people off. Because it is weird. There's a lot of shit. You're like, what the fuck? And I think I've, I haven't seen... I think the only movie, mainstream movie that I've seen that had more topless nudity in it 
was maybe the uncensored version of Showgirls. <laughs> more, more topless nudity. Oh, there's more topless nudity in this film, more titties in this movie than a Corman film. Dude, just. Well, what about Porky's? More than Porky's. It makes Porky's look like fucking Babe Pig in the City or something, dude. It, it, there's no, you know what I mean? It, there's, sure. there, there's like tits in every scene in this movie. I'm like, this came out in 74? They, they, okay, sure. All right. Yes, um, it did. Yeah, definitely rated R. And and there's some, yeah, there's a couple little rape scenes, but they're not overly rapey. They're not like, like how movies nowadays would be more detailed and more violent. It's more, yeah, he, he raped her, but you can't, it, they don't show him fully rape. You know, it's so, it's, I won't, I won't, say, <laughs> I don't want to say it's tasteful rape. It's just, they not, didn't show him fully rape her. It's but just, hey, yeah, it's yeah. just not as visceral in its, you know, presentation, right? Right. Not, not modern day. It's just pretty much, you know, that he did without it fucking burning your eyeballs, right? Right. So, but yeah, there's there's a fucking smart movie in here. And I, I stayed interested the whole time. Even when it was weirding me out with these weird things, you know, directions it would go where he's going through a hallucinogenic process where he's he's dealing with an, an, an AI computer system and he's stuck in this giant crystal and and or these people are doing these psychic control things with each other and and all the you know, and the sect of, of Eternals where, you know, they don't age, but yet if they if any of them do any kind of dissidence in the group they can they'll all vote against the person and they'll they can they can make them age just like in Rick and Morty yeah they can make them age but not kill them right. so they can make people super fucking elderly but they still don't die right and if anyone accidentally gets killed somehow they get resurrected into the same body again it's it's a weird thing they like i said they don't fully explain it all like i said it's this would be, I, I would really be interested in seeing someone like Danny new um, Danny Villeneuve or someone else remaking this today Quran so, yeah yeah yeah, remaking. Sorry, remaking this today, but doing it um, maybe in a limited run series on on Netflix or something, where you do like I don't know five to ten episodes, where you can flesh out the story, where you can see the past and how it led to this, you know. And there's a big reveal of why it's called Zardoz, and once you find out why it's called Zardoz, it makes perfect sense, and you're like, oh shit, okay. So it's not a stupid name. Twist. Yeah. Plot twist. It's not a stupid name once you find out why it's called Zardoz. So it's fucking actually pretty cool. I was like, I was like, hmm. <laughs> so, like I said, I thought this movie was going to be a piece of shit, and it turned out to be very interesting, weird, thought provoking, and entertaining. It's a seventies movie. Yeah, and Most entertaining movies in the seventies. Whether you, I yeah. mean, we make fun of movies from the seventies, like um, oh, uh, I want to say not network. Um, the Taking of Pell on One Two Three. Okay, I've never seen the original. I've only seen the remake. And I'm trying to think. You know. Solemn Precinct Modern, 13. not modern problems, but some of the Chevy Chase movies, which are later 70s. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Assault on Precinct 13. Um, not, But I'm not talking about hardcore, gritty drama yeah. stuff. I'm talking more about the comedies, you know, uh, Ordinary People, which... Uh, uh, Fell Play? <laughs> um, what was the one? Uh, Being There. With okay. Peter Sellers. Okay. I've which, never seen it, but I, yeah, I've heard Holy it. crap, dude. It, you, it's, it's like being there. It's really fucking good yeah. and tragic. It's one of those movies that you're just like, you're real happy for them. And then like, Oh yeah. So I was, <laughs> I, I would say my only two major complaints about this movie is that it spent too much time with the hallucinogenic imagery uh -huh. instead of better storytelling, instead of better exposition in a way. I wonder if that's where Hulu came from. Hulu, the TV show. I don't know. Who, who, hallucinogenic? Possibly. Hulu. 
And um, and then also, I think Sean Connery was miscast. His accent fucking takes you out of the movie. And he doesn't have much to say. He really doesn't. For almost the entire movie, when he says something, it's barely anything. It just doesn't look right. His look doesn't look right. His voice doesn't sound right. Miscast. Okay. So, and I love Sean Connery. I do. I fucking love him, but not for him. Except for when he's beating women. <laughs> don't like it when he's doing that. Brings a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. The Untouchables. We haven't even... Shit, we never talked about that movie. That's one of the greatest movie scores ever is the this, uh, Morricone. Fantastic Morricone movie. score for that movie. God damn, dude. The whole the whole thing. I love that movie. <laughs> that, that, that score energizes the fuck out of you, man. It does. Every scene. Every fucking scene, man. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a perfect movie. No, it's rushed. Far, it feels far it, from a lot of the events feel rushed through. That's a long movie too. Yeah, but yeah, I mean that score though. That score just man, it, it holds up big time. Yep. So, yeah. I, I um I alluded to this on Superstore. If you've listened to Superstar podcast, it's not really a podcast. I don't know where to even. <laughs> I don't even want to get into it. it. We do a sh- we do something that we used to call this show sucks. It's just part of the Cinescape magazine programs. And we watch really bad TV shows and comment on them. But apparently, Mr. Banana likes them. <laughs> so, which we appreciate. You know, it's... Thank you, Mr. Banana. It's awesome. So, uh, I talked about this briefly on on the Superstore podcast, which was, I'm watching, I'm currently watching, so I can talk about, like, the first movie. This, as Joe likes to say, biopic. <laughs> Biopic. I don't remember. I always go back and forth. I think biopic, biopic. He says biopic. Never sleep again. And it's about all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies that Wes Craven was involved in. It even has Wes Craven in it. It's so well done that when you're watching it, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot Wes Craven passed away. Yeah. So it's got Heather Langenkamp. It's got uh, the girl, the blonde haired girl that died. She was wearing a. Uh, a, a shift or whatever, you know, a sleeping negligee or whatever you want to call it. I can't remember. Tina? Okay. Oh, uh, she Was she the one that was in part two, three and four? May have been. Or is it she the prime time bitch? No. She's, okay. She was in the first one died. She was the first person to die. Oh, that one. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Blonde hair girl. Johnny Depp is in it, but he does an interview. Uh, but they do have an interview. They do have archive footage of him talking to James Lipton about Nightmare on Elm Street and even Wes Craven saying he's always given us credit about getting his start in basically in, in you know in his career and he loves it and you know Wes Craven loves it and yeah maybe he never had he never talks bad about it no Nightmare no 21 Jump Street maybe yeah absolutely and I think that's what he has said as well mm-hmm. so they also there's um so all of the cast members that were in the first Nightmare on Elm Street are interviewed for this. And I've only gotten up to, I want to say about 35 minutes into it. It's a four hour documentary. Okay. So it, it covers like all the movies and they're talking about now in the eighties, late, you know, late seventies to early eighties, all these innovations that happened in Hollywood were because directors didn't know how they were going to film certain scenes lightsabers, Indiana Jones, you know, the boulder thing, all of this stuff. They they even have like yeah. They they even have like scenes that this is what's even better is there's a scene it's it's been talked about in the making of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. So I'll get to a couple of things. The the uh the scene where Johnny Depp dies. Yeah. I'll get to that scene first. 
the scene where Johnny Depp dies in his room, that same room is the room that was used in Breaking, okay. Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, okay. where he dances on the ceiling. That's the Nightmare on Elm Street house, or that's Johnny Depp's room. So, and oh, what was the other scene? The other scene was uh, the girl, Tina, who got got dragged around the entire room, and then she falls on the bed and splats. Yeah. Okay, that was also done with a rotating room. They had like three or four guys manually rotating this entire set while she's flopping around on it. Yeah. She got she got vertigo. I bet. And she lost her sense of direction while she was so she's lying she's literally lying on the ceiling but it's the floor and Wes Craven stuck his head up through the window and said everything's okay. He was always there for his for his cast and crew yeah. and helping them. The, the Johnny Depp scene where they had the blood shoot out of the the bed. So that was done the same way. They rotated the entire set so that it's upside down so that they could just pour this water through the blood through that hole, right? And then have the camera sitting there. Well, they didn't account for the amount of water, the amount of liquid going into it. Yeah. And the fact that this room was uh, on, a, on a hinge, essentially, and it started to, the room shifted and all the water yeah. shifted with the room yep. and rotated the entire room. Everybody was hanging upside down that was inside the room on cameras and on the dollies were hanging upside down for 20 minutes while water filled up. Now, nobody was in danger. One guy got electrocuted. He's, he's, one, of the, he's one of the guys that get interviewed. He's a, and one of the guys that was there on the set said, I've never heard a person scream like that in my life, <laughs> but it was pretty goddamn funny. It trashed the set when this when this entire house rotated because it rotated in the wrong way. It ripped wires. It it collapsed uh, lights and the entire set went dark. That's when they were hanging upside down. Like a nightmare. <laughs> they got it all on film. Ooh. So when you watch that scene where everything is just going topsy-turvy and fucked up, that scene was not supposed to be in the movie. And Wes Craven went, it was too good not to leave it in the movie. Okay. So the Johnny Depp scene where everything gets all fucked up and you see the whole thing just go go wonky, it's still there. Huh. So anyways, <laughs> I'm, I'm that far into it and I'm completely intrigued by this documentary. I'm partially intrigued because I saw a trailer for Mark Patton's new documentary about Mark Patton played Jesse from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And you either love that movie or hate that movie. Mark has always complained about that movie ruining his career because it was quote unquote too gay. Mark is gay himself. I mean, at that point when you are in Hollywood and and you're complaining because you're too afraid to come out of the closet. Yeah. People are going to start asking questions, you know? And that's when he left Hollywood. Does that look like the beginning of it? That's the beginning of it. Okay. Well, apparently it's for because I've been searching for it on all the different platforms while you've been talking. And it's available on Amazon for $4 to rent. Yeah. Or, and it's not on Netflix, not on Hulu. But all of a sudden I went to YouTube just for the hell of it. And they have it there for rent. And all of a sudden, I also has it. You can rent it on YouTube, or you can watch it for free. Yeah. And all four hours of it's there. Or I'm sorry, all three hours and fifty eight minutes of it is there. So that's good. It's just yeah. So if you uh, you search for it, just either you can pay for it on Amazon or watch for free on YouTube. So I'm gonna. Um, I'll try to remember to watch it because yeah, it's Johnny Depp was in the Final Nightmare. 
Yeah, he did like a cameo scene. You should. Yeah, it was in uh, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. That was the 3D one they did. And uh, Tom Arnold and Roseanne show up for a cameo as well. I saw it once. I think I saw, yeah, I saw Freddy's Dead once at the drive-in. So we're watching this, the Johnny Depp horror scene from A Nightmare on Elm Street where he gets sucked into the bed. He's got the TV on his lap. Ding, ding, ding. Like, they had another actor that was supposed to play his part. Apparently, he's supposed to be a jock and whatever else. And Johnny Depp came on the set, and they're like, that's him. Wes Craven's daughter's like, he's so beautiful. <laughs> he, that's that's how he got hired. He glistens. Literally, that's how he got hired. His, Wes Craven said, this guy or this guy. And she's like, Johnny Depp. He's like, why? He's so beautiful. Like, really? So you can see as you watch the camera, and you see all the blood coming up. You see that? Yeah. Yeah, So the so the blood... That entire scene right there. It's filmed in reverse. See, do you see the? Do you see how everything's starting to shift? Yeah. That entire scene was because the water's filling up and yeah. it's starting to rotate the fucking room. <laughs> so I'm gonna save that. Okay. So yeah. Um. Anyways, I'm in the middle of watching. I've I've really really enjoyed what I've seen so far, but I'm watching it mostly because this is a prelude to the uh. Uh, Mark Patton stuff before I check out his uh, documentary. I wanted to see what was done in this documentary in regards to how he talked about it. I guess this is really the first, that documentary, The two, it's 2010. That 2010 documentary was really the first time that he started to really talk about his problems with A Nightmare on Elm Street and the reasons why, not just blaming everybody and telling everybody they're a bunch of fucking assholes, you know, and, you know, stereotyping me as gay and I'm not gay and this and that. This is a real in-depth, thoughtful talk about that movie and what it what led to him leaving Hollywood. Uh -huh. So that's why I wanted to watch it. All right. So um, lastly, I wanted to uh, do a quickie about uh, the final season of Preacher. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. And if you haven't seen it, Mike, um, I watched some of it. Okay. I like I, I, the first three seasons of Preacher. I really enjoyed every season had something different. There was always a surprise or multiple surprises and twists and just over the top gory things that I didn't even think of that would happen. And I was entertained all the way through. Okay. Even when there's a little bit of lulls in the storytelling, I still, every episode, I'm like, what's going to happen next? Then the fourth season comes along. Now, here's the weird part. I put off watching this final season when it, when it appeared on Hulu. Like, it's been on Hulu for, I don't know, like eight months or more available. And because the series ended like in October of last year it or, or whatever. But it's been on, but it's been available for a long time now, and I kept putting it off. And finally, I'm like, dude, I gotta watch Preacher. I fucking love Preacher. Okay, start watching it, and it's ten episodes, and there, this this season for the most part is just lacking. It's lacking proper direction. It's lacking proper <sighs> proper direction with the characters. It doesn't seem to know what it wants to, how to finish the story up. And I know that, you know, that, that, uh, Goldberg and Rogan and everybody, they were told that this is going to be the final season. The show's going to be, you know, canceled technically. So they wrapped everything up for this final season. Problem is, is that even though they do wrap everything up for this final season, 
they waste a bunch of time doing pointless subplots that go fucking nowhere, that don't advance the characters in any way whatsoever. They add extra depth to certain characters they didn't need to add depth to while taking away depth from other fucking characters that needed depth. And it just, it get, it got infuriating at times because it's like, why are you wasting time here when there should be more of this there and stuff like that? And by, and, and look, the final episode, which is called The End of the World, it, does it look it ends on a good note like when the final scene of this uh, show is really well done and for the most part it ends on a good note the problem is is that that the lead up to it in this final season felt half-assed you know there was no surprises to me at all in this there's one really entertaining thing about god in one of the episodes where it shows him with the dinosaurs when he, you know, he's enjoying his creation of the dinosaurs. And there's this fucking see- sequence where <laughs> the dinosaurs are all, they all look like, 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 uh, like cheap puppets, like claymation type cheap puppets. And he's all happy about them. And all of a sudden this brontosaurus takes this huge shit in front of him. And he's like, what are you doing? And all of a sudden the brontosaurus turns around, gives him a weird look and starts eating the shit eating its own shit and god's like no don't do it no and then it burps at him it burps its own shit breath at him and so all of a sudden it pisses him off and he starts he sends all the comets and meteors and shit and he kills all the fucking dinosaurs (laughs) and it's it's hilarious because it's cheap effects on intentionally and it it's just great and it, it 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 fed into the whole style and originality of Preacher, the whole series. It fit really well. It was so fucking cool. But the rest of the show does not live up to that, that promise of storytelling and 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 out of left field, weird, you know, storytelling. And it's just, and it pisses me off, okay? So the character of Jesse, he, his story arc pretty much, it works kind of fine, okay? Cassidy, his storyline works fine. But like I said, they waste too much time with him like stuck in prison. Ruth Negga's character, her and Cassidy together really work well off of each other. And for the most part, their storylines, they, they finish out okay. But the insulting ones, Arseface, for example. Arseface's character is in this, but it's like they have him in it just to be in it this time. There's nothing about him being here this time. Was that, this the one Australia, where they chased him to Australia? Yeah. So Arseface is just tagging along with the Saint of Killers and, or the Killer of Saints or whatever. Yeah. I, yeah. The Killer Saint of, of Killers. Yeah. And, and he's just there. It's, it seemed like they was like, they wanted to have something for him to do. So they just have him tagging along, but he doesn't do anything. Well, he's the one that got Preacher captured and killed by the Killer of Saints. Yeah. And it pretty much gets to the point where he. So it's not he, like he didn't do anything. But it, for the most part, it feels like he's not. And then his, his conclusion is dumb it's it's fucking dumb and it's a waste of time he's just he just ends up standing on the side of a fucking uh, on the corner of a street and playing a guitar that's it it, it, it doesn't there's well, he got beat up it, it comes back to that it just ends with his character it was like what was the point of him even being in the season there was nothing there for him really except for his little of revenge that he wanted against preacher for sending him to hell so it, it also the ki- the saint of killers his character Okay, sure. He finally gets to confront God in the last five fucking minutes of the of the episode of the final of the final episode. Okay, but before that, it's just him still chasing preacher. Nothing. He doesn't do. There's one cool thing he does. He shoots a fucking hole through the earth that goes all the way from Mexico 
<laughs> to fucking Australia. And it's cool. He jumps through it and him and our space jump through it and end up on the other side of the world. Okay. That was fucking funny and cool. But that's it. It, it just felt like they crammed in his fight with God right to the, at the end of the series. And that was it. Quick scene. That was, that was disappointing. It felt anticlimactic. All right. There could have been more to it than that. Then it would have been nice if there was some dialogue between God and the Saint of Killers uh, about why this is happening the way it's happening. And there was barely any dialogue before the Saint of Killers kills him. And it's just a fucking waste. Another character, Air Star. First three seasons, I love Air Star. But it seemed like with this one, he's just there. And he's in every episode, but they give him a backstory about when he was younger and a kid and he was in the beauty contest and shit. And it feels, it just feels dumb. It, really? He didn't like that? No. Well, it was funny for a minute, but it was like adding depth to a character that I didn't really, it didn't, it, it felt like better with his character for me that there was a mystery to him. I didn't need to know his backstory. And then all of a sudden the way he ends up, he ends up not dying. He's just on a golf course playing and then people try to come and arrest him and he fucking kills them and he keeps playing golf. It just, it's weird. It's weird. And you've never read the comic. Well, I heard that now I haven't read the comic, but people that say that they've read the comic, like in the comment section um, on the, on IMDb, everyone who's read the comic says the show goes completely away from it. And it's an insult to the fucking comic. So I don't know. So it's like, they no, no but I'm, what I'm yeah. saying is I'm not, I am not. Yeah. Because TV shows always go off, you know, into a weird tangents. Yeah. This show is, is uh, produced by the guy that created it. Uh huh. So if they're insulted, yeah, then they don't understand where the creator of fucking preacher, yeah, allowed them to go because essentially from what I understand, yeah, they ran every story by him. Then that's weird because I mean just like with Robert Kirkman, he's been involved with the Walking Dead team. But Kirkman, Ro yeah, Robert Kirkman, he he's been involved with the entire walking dead show and you've seen how far that's fucking derailed. Mm -hmm. So it so, can happen. So for, for people to get pissed off at, who is it? I can't remember the guy that created it for the creators to not, because the comic is one story. Yeah. And the TV show is also one story, but kind of based on it. Yeah. So look, I mean the, the season was truncated. So, cause it was canceled. Yeah. So they didn't get to go into full in depth, and I, I you know, where where they were going with with the story, uh, they had to essentially just speed it up. Yeah, they just like okay, we just need to end it. we got to end this, so let's just end it. And it, yeah, there's like there's this whole subplot where Jesse goes to this this in the middle, and it's just called the Middle East because they don't want to offend anybody on the show, I guess, in real life. So they don't say what country it's in in the Middle Why East. Why would they that just offend say, anybody? It just it felt that way. Stop adding it color. It Stop. felt that way. There you go. By them just saying it's the Middle East. But th th that's... That's a big fucking area. Yeah, but that's insane to say it would offend anybody. You know, like, oh, color don't want to say it's Iran or Iraq or whatever. But that doesn't... But so anyway, there's this weird subplot where there's a, a, a child murdering pedophile ring that's running out of this big giant mansion in the middle of the desert. And he goes in there for some... It, it, it's like a waste of time. It doesn't do... That any, was in fucking New Orleans. No, no, no. I'm talking about in this season. This season, it was in the Middle East. I swear to God. Because he leaves the Masada place and, and goes to this place before he goes to Australia. It's it's really fucking weird. I, I And I binged this whole thing in two days. This whole final season, which is only 10 episodes. Another character who didn't get justice, Hitler. <laughs> 
Hitler's character was interesting in the in the first. What did he show up in the second and third seasons? He was interesting. He was weird. He had a, a backstory and weird shit about his you know hell and you know him you know finally becoming this tyrant again. And this season, it felt like he just popped up just to be there to be the counteract to Jesus. And he doesn't do anything. He doesn't have any poppy dialogue. He doesn't give anything to the show at all. He's just there to be there. And he has this final fist fight with Jesus. And it just, it felt like a waste of time. It was nothing fun about it. There was nothing clever, humorous, nothing. It just felt like, why is he even here? When he had so much to offer, the character had so much to offer in the previous seasons. It just, ugh, it was frustrating. It was frustrating. and, and But yet, I'm still watching the whole time. I'm still glued to the screen because I want to know where this is going to go. But I, I mean it. This season, the first three seasons of Preacher, to me, loved it. We're, I'm, for me, it's going between a fucking 9 and a 10. I love it. Like, I wanted to, when this whole thing was said and done, I wanted to own the whole series. You know what I mean? And now with this final season, it's not as disappointing as, say, Game of Thrones final season or anything like that. But it's definitely it dropped down. It, it like it dropped down by at least twenty five percent in quality and storytelling and everything. Maybe no, actually, fucking forty fifty percent. I don't know. I thought the first half was really good, but after that, I just stopped watching it. See what I mean? It, even w- without even thinking about it, you just lost interest in it. And you didn't even know why, right? Because no, it, I know why. Because I got tired of waiting for them to fucking produce episodes. Uh-huh. Oh, was there? Oh, was there a big? But it was gap? like a break in between the first. The first half of the season, and the last half. Huh. Okay. Because I I got up to the point where uh, Hitler and and Jesus were having the discussions. Yeah. You know the the negotiations for for yeah, everyone's world, souls. Right? Yeah. yeah. And th- and then it was just like and then and then Jesus escapes. They have that that uh, rally, if you want to call it a rally. And then there's that fight inside the 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 TV booth and everything else. That's pretty much where then and that was like the last episode I saw after I saw that last yeah you know I mean it just it was weird like okay they they kidnap okay so Cassidy and Tulip kidnap Humperdoo because God cares about Humperdoo doesn't care about Jesus at all right he needs Humperdoo for the apocalypse so if Humperdoo doesn't doesn't do a dance in front of TV audiences at a specific time then the world can't end right so. They're going to kill Humperdoo. Well, the problem is they're hiding in this farmhouse for like three months with him. And they have a C4 strapped to his chest. And they're going to kill him at any time. But then they don't. They they end up starting care, especially Cassidy. Right. Cassidy starts caring about him a and lot. They're, they're searching for him, but they keep finding clones all over the place. Yeah. They just keep killing the clones. And that's funny. There's still funny shit that happens, right? Yeah. But and then all of a sudden, Cassidy can't kill him. And so... Airstar and them get him, get, you know, they, they take him back. And for some reason they don't kill Cassidy and Tulip while they're there. They just leave him there, even though there's their threats to the apocalypse. And then at the end of the series, out of nowhere, finally Cassidy ends up killing Humperdoo anyway. It just felt like a waste of time. It just, I didn't, but see, I, like I said, I got up to that point where they had Humperdoo, he gets taken back to the, to devil's tower or whatever the hell it is. And, and the TV show happens, but he doesn't, he doesn't, yeah. um, well, they killed him yeah, because he doesn't tap dance and yeah. God doesn't care about any of them anyways. He's just, he doesn't, he really doesn't care about Jesus. He, yeah. I like the guy that played God, you know? Yeah. Oh no, he's great. He's hilarious. He's funny and he's, he gets a lot of scene, chew, uh, scenery chewing scenes, you know, and he's really cool, but his character is also odd because 
even though he doesn't want to destroy Earth on his own, he wants humans to end up making it happen. Right. He doesn't want to make that decision, although yeah. he did that for the dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, because now he's making, I don't know if you saw up to this point, um, but he started creating a new species for the third round. Right. Because, you know, dinosaurs failed, you know, humans have failed. But we never get to see it. So you kind of see it. What It looked like, it looked like, because you see like tails sticking out of cages and stuff. I think he was making a hybrid between humans and dinosaurs. I think. So, and he starts strength at the final episode because he fails Jesse and Jesse gets rid of the Genesis. He frees it. Oh, that's right. Because yeah. they were sitting outside uh, the Alamo or. Yeah, what? it was the Alamo. And he's got a camper outside. Yeah, there, yeah. And he's lounging out there. And Jesse finally shows up. It's like two years later. After and he the, makes him kneel. Yeah. So I did watch the entire okay. last part. Yeah. And so he frees Genesis, which you I found out Genesis is the product of an, an angel and a demon fucking. That's called a Nephilim. Yeah. And so, and that was what scared God the whole time. Right. It sounded condescending, and I apologize. That's right, it's supposed to be. I, it's, it is what it is. So, yeah, and so there's still some fun there, but it, also the motivations of God were kind of confusing at it as well. You know, his character felt like a weird contradiction in a way. And yeah, he has a he has like some hot stripper girlfriend. Yeah, he's like, why don't you go and, and why don't you go to the store, honey? And I'm wondering if this went I went without saying maybe I'm slowing the uptake, but is the reason why he liked dressing up like a dog is because dog is the opposite of God. I don't know. Spelled backwards. You know what I mean? So he went completely opposite or something. Is that why I, 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 I that just he also dressed up as a biker. I don't know. Yeah. That was what was weird, but his character was fun. He was, it's just, his motivations were really weird. And I, like I said, I, it just felt like incomplete the like, like they, I think they rushed a major stuff. I think they probably had another season or two planned for this that they wanted to do. And instead, they just, yeah, didn't know what to do with this final season. So I, I am disappointed, but I still highly recommend watching Preacher overall. All four seasons are available on Hulu, and it is worth watching. It is, and the 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 final payoff is is cool. Like I, I'm gonna say what it is, but the final scene. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Don't fucking do that. What? Don't don't you? Okay. What? I'm, what? I'm I'm making a new rule for the show. What is it? And and it's it's part it's your fucking dumb. I don't want to give it away, but I don't I don't want to do this. But stop, 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 stop. I already gave away the rest of it, huh? Well, the final scene is set when um it's set forty years later after Jesse and Tulip have had a kid, and now the kid's forty years old. Now they're dead. They're in their graves, and the daughter, who's now in her forties, she's standing in front of their graves, and it's played by Ruth Nega, right? as their daughter. And all of a sudden she's standing there and her kids are playing in the background at this cemetery. Cassidy walks up next to her and he's standing with her and they're talking and she's like, Oh, my parents have told me all about you. And he stayed away ever since the apocalypse. He hasn't visited them. He never came back to visit them. And you could tell because he was hurt about his relationship with Tulip and all that stuff. And he just, you know, and so he just says what he needs to say to her. And she goes, well, I hope I see you again. And she goes, well, I see you again someday. He goes, I hope so. And all of a sudden she doesn't turn. She keeps facing the graves and he walks out of the back. You know, he starts walking into the background and, and where the sunlight is. And he, he takes his clothes off and fucking, he just starts burning up in the background. He kills himself. And it just, it's a really well done shot. It's really cool looking and it fit. It fit with the relationship that he had with with Jesse and Tulip and stuff like that. I thought that was a good way to end it. If even though they fucked up a lot of the the final season, so it was dramatic. So and that's and he dies similarly in the comic book. It's in a different way, but it's similar. 
So he dies similarly, but in a different way. Yeah, it's it's similar. Like what he does, he does the same thing in a way where he kills himself by walking in the sun. But he made a deal with um, I can't remember if it was God or someone else, but he made a deal that he, um, he would be able to re- be resurrected as a human or something. I can't remember. It's weird shit. I you have to read about it. So I don't retain everything I read, man. I'm a fucking moron. So, <laughs> but I do I do like preacher and and yeah, disappointing ending, but. Overall, the series is strong and cool. So that's all I got. 